listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. Our guest today is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. He's the author of over 15 books, including Faith After Doubt, A Generous Orthodoxy, and A New Kind of Christian, which got me in a whole lot of trouble at my home church 20 years ago. His new book, Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned, is an absolute must-read for any Christian struggling to make sense of things in this crazy world we live in. It is an absolute joy and honor to welcome to the podcast Brian McLaren. Well, a joy and honor for me to be with you guys. So so glad to be here. Yes, I was thrilled to death uh, to get that, that email confirming that you had time in your very busy schedule to be with us today. Um, we're all big fans, and I'm sure a lot of folks on the of our listenership likewise. Well, hey, and I got to say now that I know about you guys, I'm I'm your fan as well. And uh, you know this subject of the yes. inter, in, interaction uh, between faith and science. My goodness, so important these days. So really happy to be in this conversation. Yes, thank you. I love the way that you weave these two things together in your writings, by the way. And I've noticed it really in the past 10 years worth of books or so. It seems it seems almost effortless that every once in a while you're just going to get some reference in there to evolution, some reference in there to the cosmic origins yeah. of the universe. It just seems like it is it it is always somewhere in the back of your mind. Well, it's yeah, I, and uh <laughs> Maybe I could say it this way: Without science, I don't think I could be a Christian. <laughs> so, uh, ah. so yeah, I, I I can't imagine how anyone would want to have a faith that where they had to keep their faith in one compartment and then everything else <laughs> in another compartment. So. Right? Yeah. Huh. Well, that's a sound clip that I'll definitely <laughs> absolutely. <use> <laughs> So Ian and I have been talking a lot recently about your new book, which uh, when the time this podcast launches will have been released yesterday. So available at all of your major retailers. Um, So this book, which is just so helpfully entitled, Do I Stay Christian? um, Answers that question, which I think a lot of folks have had over the past couple years, especially. But it's, it's very helpfully organized into three sections answer that question that no i will not stay christian and here's why uh yes i will stick it out and stay christian and the last section is how which of those sections is taking up the most real estate in your mind in in your day-to-day life well let's see yeah i think all of them jostle for the top position but um i think actually the writing of this book propelled the third question uh, up in importance. Because I, mm. I, in the writing of this book, I realized it's just in, inevitable. Some people cannot stay Christian. The, the religion is killing them. Um, it, it's damaging them. They need to get away, at least for a time. And, um, and other people will stay Christian. It's who they are. And how could they deny who they are? And, and, and then what I realized is, even whatever you decide on staying Christian, you have to wake up the next morning and ask, what kind of a human being am I going to be? And mm. uh, that, I hope that the reading of the book uh, helps lift the, the, the uh, importance of that question up for everybody. Well, and I, you know, Brian, I really appreciated 
that aspect of the book. And as I said before recording, I absolutely loved the book. You know, so for me, I don't have the kind of you know, historical experiences that I know, Brian, you talk about in your books and that Zach has had and talked about before, ne- you know, feeling that I needed to leave, like deconstruct and then come back or anything like that. But um, one of the things that I've always struggled with is, and you, you do so well in the first several chapters when the answer to your question is no, you know, all those chapters explaining no just really stood out for me. And so, but sorry, I know I'm rambling. This is normal for me. Uh, but at the end, I loved, as you just said, too, connecting it back to what kind of human do we want to be? Mm. You know, I tell people a lot when they question my faith because I'm open with my doubts and questions and the idea of a literal resurrection and thing. Those are all questions and doubts I have, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to resolve them. Yeah. But I think yeah. I prefer to think of it as that I want to live my life fighting for what Jesus fought for. Uh, what a great way to what a great way to say it. Right. And so if it's more of that's the way I live, I don't have to stand on a rooftop and scream, everyone be a Christian. It's more of a this is the life I want to live. And I love that you did that. And isn't it ironic that major sectors of the Christian religion are really uninterested whether you want to fight for the things Jesus fought for. They're right. really interested in <laughs> whether you will check certain boxes of uh, agreeing with their authority figures about what you're supposed to uh, say about Jesus. So uh, I, I just can't help but think that Jesus would be happier <laughs> with someone who's ready to join him in the struggle. Uh, his yeah. word for that was follow me uh, than, than have mm. certain opinions about me. In fact, you you know, there's that passage in the Gospels where he says, you know, I really don't care if you call me Lord, Lord. I mean, what what difference does that make, the words you use about me, if you don't do what I say? So, yeah. Right. Well, and in this book, uh, and also, too, in uh, your podcast, Learning How to See, you start off talking about something that was very close to me. So, I got my PhD from the University of Virginia. And so I was in, my wife and I were in Charlottesville. It was the first place we really lived as a young married couple. Uh, we were there from 04 to 08. And so when the, the situation happened in Charlottesville in August of 2017, yeah. that was very challenging for us because the grounds of UVA are places I yeah. spent four years of my life that we loved that town. And so that was very challenging for us. And then hearing you on your podcast and reading in this book, I would love to if you could talk more about that experience, because I didn't realize you were there. And mm-hmm. so I'm just curious if you can kind of talk about that. Yeah. Well, the story of how I ended up there was kind of interesting. I had introduced this couple to each other who ended up getting married and both were seminary gra- graduates. And so they were a ministry couple in Charlottesville. And they contacted me and they said, look, Brian, um, we you may not have even heard about this. And I hadn't. It, it turns out, you know, before, uh, was it August 10th? I've forgotten the date mm-hmm. now. Uh, whatever the date was in August, they'd had a series of Ku Klux Klan rallies. It was like, it, 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 a lot of people don't know this, but there is a group of people who are planning for a civil war. And mm-hmm. um, they want to make Charlottesville the capital of the new Confederacy. I, and, I did not know that part. Yeah, it's scary and it's crazy stuff. But and 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 yeah, very disturbing. Um, and they said so. A really big one is coming in August, and we're we're trying to get clergy to come support us. 
uh, and, and to stand with us. And they said, we're finding a lot of clergy of color and we're finding a lot of women clergy who will come. We're really finding it hard to get white male clergy to come. And of course, there's a big supply mm. of them, but they just couldn't get them to come. So they said, it, they said, is there any chance you could come? You need to know it's going to be dangerous. There are going to be a lot of guns there. Several militia have already signed up to be there, and they'll all come heavily armed. And I said, um, I'm not going to tell that last part to my wife, but yes, I, I would be honored to be there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, And actually, she knew that there, there would be some danger, and she made me make certain promises to her about what I would do and not do uh, when I was there. But it was just an experience I'll never forget. First, seeing how organized these folks were. They were super, super highly organized. Mm -hmm. um, I was invited into a meeting, an Antifa meeting, uh, a, a, of people who were organizing to try to not let these folks um, sort of rule the city for a day. And I never thought in my lifetime I would see people carrying Confederate flags and Nazi flags and a bunch of other flags, along with Bibles and other Christian paraphernalia. Uh, I never thought I would see that. And of course, and, and I happened to be just up the street when Heather Hare and other, mm. was killed and others were injured by a guy using a car as a terrorist weapon to drive through a crowd. And a group of us clergy went I was wearing, you know, black leather shoes. And I just remember the feeling of my feet slapping against the ground as I ran down this hill into this crowd where there was chaos and people screaming and crying. And um, so the, an experience I'll never forget. But then January 6th, uh, 2021 mm -hmm. happened. And I just thought, there they are again, you know. And in between, I'd organized a, an, a, a public uh, event here in Florida, where I live, where, where we had been, our, our event was disrupted and the entrances were blocked by the Proud Boys. So I, yeah, this has been a big part of my experience and watching the complicity of major sectors of the Christian faith with these folks has been, yeah, it's, it's highly significant in the way I wrote this book, Do I Stay Christian? Because yeah. I feel like that, I, I, I wish I'd put this sentence in the book but it only became clear to me actually in the last few days that one of the reasons I wrote the book the, the way I did, and I took those first 10 chapters to really take the no seriously is because I am worried uh, that the, those 10 chapters give a, a kind of overview of some of Christianity's crimes and, and uh, through the centuries um, I'm worried that the worst things Christianity has ever done will be exceeded in the next few years. Mm. Um, and I, that's why I feel anyone who stays Christian better be aware of the danger that our religion poses to this world and to many of our neighbors. And, and that then puts a kind of responsibility on us to say, if I'm going to inhabit this religion, I better take responsibility for trying to stand up to some of the harm that it is in danger of in doing, and not just in danger of doing, it is actually doing, you know, as we right. speak. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're not just complicit in the rise and spread of white supremacy. Uh, Western Christianity is the yes. author of white yes. supremacy. It is very much our yes. child, and it is completely inseparably intertwined with Western Christianity as we know it. And so this is not an issue for the black church to figure out or to yes. lead us in. Um, this is not an issue for, you know, people of color to be taking charge. This is our problem, our sin and our need to, uh, 
to work on, to fix, to fight. And you're somebody who's been at the front lines of that, it seems. What, what can the rest of us do, uh, us uh, white Christians out here? How can we help fight the scourge? I mean, just look, even as recording this, we just, uh, we just witnessed uh, another white supremacist kill 10 people in a Buffalo right. grocery store. And by the time that this podcast launches, who what knows will if there will be another one. It just seems like we're just spinning yes. our wheels at yes. this point. Well, uh, let me say first, I really agree with you that white Christians really have a responsibility right now. Um, and, and one of our responsibilities is to listen to the cries and the agony and the frustration of our uh, neighbors of color uh, who, are, who are just, you know, who can blame them for saying, uh, you know, if they hear thoughts and prayers one more time, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, yeah. So uh, here's what one thing I think we can do. I think we can all make a commitment that we will never let a racially harmful statement go unchallenged. Um, and, mm. uh, I, and I think we have to learn how to challenge them in ways that don't create a worse blowback. But silence is its own vote of confidence and its vo own vote of support for outrageous, uh, immoral, harmful, dangerous statements. So my, my little uh, recommendation to people is that you develop your own version of this five-word statement. Here's my version of it. Wow, I see that differently. Um, it, it's instead of, you know, you're such a bigot, you're, it's I, I see that differently. I throw a wow in there because I want to add a little bit of emotional intent, intensity without having to yell or scream. Wow, I see that differently. And almost every time I say that, people say, what do you mean? What do you mean? And if it's in public, I say, I say to them, I'd rather talk to you about this in private. If you'd like to uh, ask me about it in private some other time, I'll be glad to talk to you. Um, the, and the reason I say that, and, and there might be times to have the conversation in public, but what I've noticed is that anytime these conversations happen in public, egos are so involved, people are defending them, mm -hmm. people are performing their loyalty to whatever group it is. Uh, and so hmm. it, it seldom becomes an act of communication and usually becomes the kind of argument that hardens people in their positions. And um, I would like to be someone who helps little cracks form in their position or, or helps soften their position. And if, if I can set up the terms of that discussion, then I'll say to them, if you're ever curious about why I see things differently and how I came to see things differently, I'll be glad to have that conversation with you in private. Just let me know when you'd like to know how I came to see things differently. Because I'm not asking them to tell me how, how they see things. Uh, I'll listen respectfully if they want, but I've been listening respectfully. That's what got us into this situation. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> yeah, wow, I see that differently is my, my mantra <laughs> in these circumstances. Mm. Well, that's very disarming. And I feel, know. and I, and I feel it's honest and it's non-aggressive, uh, mm -hmm. but it also is an act of protest, and it's just an act of differing, uh, boldly yet uh, hopefully graciously, non-hatefully. You know, so right. yeah. And and frankly, I'll just say frankly, late in the book, there, there in that house section of the book, there's a chapter called. Uh, announce and renounce uh, or renounce and announce and in some ways it's the same thing it's 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 
having more and more of us just have the courage to say, I am not where you are. And to do it in a way that says, it's not that I hate you. It's not that I uh, am going to insult you. In fact, I'm going to just state in a way that says, I don't, I'm, nothing's changing in our relationship, but I'm not where you are. If that creates a problem for you, Mm -hmm. then we'll deal with it. But I need to let you know, I can be at a different place than you are. Uh, so, mm. I thought that story you told in that chapter about John Ray and Amanda was really yeah. uh, powerful. And one of the phrases that stood out it was after you know early on in the story uh, when John Ray comes back to Amanda and says, "I was confronted by your father for twenty minutes." And uh, the phrase that you used in the book was, "He felt that he was in the presence of Christian hate." Yes, and I thought that was just. Just those four words, or five words, yeah, four yes. words, presence of Christian hate, just really kind of caught me, Of because I feel yeah. like that's what we're seeing a lot of right now. Yes, yes. And and of course, Christians will say, that's not hate, that's love, um, and, and, they, <sighs> and they're satisfied uh, with that. But there is something really ugly going on. It's just ugly, and I've experienced it. And my gosh, when you're on Twitter and Facebook, you know, I, I grew up fundamentalist, and part of being a fundamentalist is you didn't cuss and you didn't use crude language and mm-hmm. you you felt this obligation to be decent and and respectful but my gosh the the profanity and the i mean it's just it's just shocking to me to see what what people are doing in the name of Jesus and it's all sort of acceptable and of course some of this is because they're imitating their new leader you know Donald Trump who's in a sense mm-hmm. the new leader of their denomination that has that has newly formed and um, uh, and and part of this is just stuff that's been in the American psyche for a long time and maybe we're better with the profanity because it's you know, Somebody said, when I mentioned I've had a lot of interactions with the Proud Boys, they said, it's just the, the KKK with that, and the sheets are off. And I think that's, mm. there's some truth to that. So this is a historical reckoning that needed to happen. So better now than yeah. not letting it happen, you know, letting right. it fester for another hundred years. Yeah, that chapter, which kind of tells the story of a couple who's, ideologies had changed, their faith had changed, and they hadn't really let their family know, which I think a lot of folks who have deconstructed can relate to because they're going to, they're afraid of then being renounced by their family. And she gathers up the courage after her husband has been sort of accosted for 20 minutes to go up and just tell her father, this is how it's going to be from here on out. And you you, you talked about that in terms of a coming out yeah. story for her. And that framing, I think, is really helpful and something that queer theologians, this gift that yeah. they have given us, this idea of coming out it is a vulnerable experience in which you can be hurt in all new ways but it is such an empowering experience i read one uh one theologian referred to john one as god's coming out oh my that jesus's incarnation is him showing who he truly is to the world and offering up himself to be either accepted in new ways or hurt in all new ways and I honestly had never understood the incarnation yeah. until then. Um, but this idea that those of us 
who are straight, cis, hetero folks who have never had the need to come out to people to tell them, this is how you have perceived me, but this is how I truly am. We've just always been known for who we are, that this is something that we, we should learn, that we should need to love louder than, than yes. the hate and that we need to be more vocal. It's not enough to just love on our own, but that we need to love loudly and outly. Yeah. Another little saying that has kind of been sitting with me lately is I would rather be rejected for who I am than accepted for who I am not. <laughs> and, I wrote that uh, down. Well, like I, I want to tattoo that on my arm or something. Cause I think that's <laughs> such a powerful phrase. It really is. And I think what, one of the things that just saying it that way helps me do is realize that the fear of rejection has so much power over so many of us. And yeah. As someone who's experienced a bit of uh, rejection, uh, and and mm. now I know Zach has led to other people to being rejected. So, um, <laughs> but but it's it's not the end of the world. It's not the worst thing that ever happens to you. In fact, Mm-mm. some pretty amazing positive things happen can happen in the experience of rejection. So. Uh, and and isn't it interesting in the Gospels? This is really a major theme of Jesus' teaching. Hey, guys, if you take seriously what I'm saying, you're going to be rejected. Here's what's going to happen. And, and, it, 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 and then we're surprised when it happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> the high priest is going to block you on Twitter at this point. And... Well, and I think you mentioning the uh, rejection, uh, the fear of rejection. I mean, that's something that cripples me at times. You know, with my own work of wanting to write as an academic for a more public audience, it it's something that holds me back quite a bit. Um, and reading, you know, your book has helped, and then also uh, Rob Bell's work as well, of helping me remember that it's not, I cannot control people's reactions to my work yes. and my message. And so. if we're writing about things that matter, then then there are things that people have strong opinions about and they have vested interests in. And so, of Mm. course, there'll be pushback. Like, you know, every once in a while, I have to sit down with myself and just say, of course, people get upset. What were you expecting to get a Nobel Prize? You know, it's like, (laughs) of course they get upset. So, yeah. uh, And that's just the territory. And it's, it's, it's part of the privilege of talking about things that really matter and, and working on things that, mm. that matter. So oh, I like that. Does it, it doesn't make it easy, but it does. I think it, it is, it's something we have to do that helps us navigate through those first few experiences of rejection that, that can either scar us for life or become our, uh, hazing <laughs> for for a member yeah. membership in a new uh, a new community. Yeah, I've experienced a lot of the dirty underbelly of the Christian yeah. church uh, growing up in in the back rooms of the church and then being a part of church leadership. Uh, the first 10 chapters of your book where you talk about all the reasons why you should leave Christianity. I at the end of every chapter I thought to myself, I know where he's going. I know there's a there's a part two, but I'm almost ready to just like <laughs> just close yes. the book here and be like, yeah, no, he does have a point. Why should I be yeah. a part of this? And re- even reading part two, a um, couple chapters in, where you're talking about why we should stay Christian, and 
and I thought, ah, these don't quite outweigh yet in my mind where, uh, where part one was. Um, and then, then I hit chapter 14 and you asked us to consider an anticipatory Christianity that is leaning towards the future. And I love that phrase so much. I highlighted it. I wrote it down an anticipatory Christianity because it describes the stance towards the future in which that doesn't necessarily claim that everything in the future is better than everything in the past, that we're evolving into something better, just something different and newer and maybe better adapted. Would you care to unpack that phrase for us a yeah. little bit, how that is bringing you life and hope you know, and There's joy? a lot of ways to do it, but a kind of fun way is to say that both in religion and science, a lot of us inherited a religion where the locus of power was always in the past. So the you know, the Big Bang mm. happens, and I bet most of us have seen this in a science movie somewhere, and it's like uh, uh, somebody playing pool, and, and they hit the cue ball, and the cue ball hits the rack of, you know, balls, and everything is action-reaction being driven from the past. And that describes, that's one way of looking at the universe. It's one way of describing the universe. But there's another way to look at it, to say, to think of the locus of power, not just being in the past, but actually being the future itself that uh, Mm. opens, that constantly gives everything a chance to move in some new direction. Um, And a, a way that theologians have talked about this is to say, instead of thinking of God, pushing things out of the past into the future. Imagine God in the distant future, inviting things to keep moving toward maturity. Um, uh, mm. the, the, one of the early church uh, scholars is a very imaginative fellow. His name was Gregory of Nyssa. <coughs> and um, mm. Gregory uh, got in trouble with a lot of his fellow scholars because they all bought into this idea of Greek philosophy that perfection is static because perfection can only get worse. If it could change, it wouldn't be perfect. If it could change for the better, it wouldn't be perfect. So perfection is always static. And Gregory said, that's just not good enough. He said, perfection is infinite progression. This idea of an endlessly Hmm. open future for endlessly new possibilities, you know. And um, so that way of thinking, uh, uh, instead of God sort of being in control, either behind us or standing over us, it's God inviting us into greater freedom and greater wholeness and greater maturity and greater relationship and greater diversity and greater beauty, which is actually what we see kind of unfolding in the universe, you know? Um, There was no Mozart or Bob Dylan or... Uh, Taylor Swift, uh, you know, four billion years ago, um, and and so <laughs> these things, new things that you never ever would have anticipated, are baked into the possibilities and 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 have chances to open up. So uh, that's yes. and and when we yes. let that kind of almost scientific view also have a theological expression. It helps us think about Christianity, not as something that is already set in concrete, but something that is uh, in its very early stages. Hmm. It is hard to think about Christianity in its early mm. stages, 2,000 yeah. years later, but that is that can be helpful. If we can, 
you know, I, I think I said before we started recording that, uh, especially reading the first part of your book where you're providing, you know, many reasons why the answer to your question would be no. That's when I was reading it near my wife and I would stop and be like, oh my God, I have to, I have to read this for you. Um, so if I can read a quote to you that just really stood out for me, and I just would love to get your thoughts on it a little bit more, but it's in the chapter, Because Christianity is a Failed Religion. Mm. And at the very end, you talk about, you know, you kind of are speaking to the, your reader, obviously, of asking if that was harsh to them for people to consider many of the things you've already shared. Um, but you say, if you persist in minimizing these failures of the past and brushing them aside as trivial matters, then please realize to growing millions of people, you now represent the contemporary failure of Christianity to transform lives. To put it more bluntly, you are a living example of the failure of Christianity, and you are another reason for them not to stay Christian, which resonated with me. I mean, I, I probably, I'm a very emotional person, and I started crying when I read it, but it was just a, I'd love to know, how did that feel as a leader in Christianity? Many people look to you to write that sentence. Yeah, I remember writing it, and I... And I have been in so many of those conversations. Uh, I, I won't mention this name just out of, you know, politeness, but a, a leader of people of my generation and, and probably your generation would know his name. He died a few years ago, but he was super well-known, highly respected on Christian radio and all that sort of thing. And um, we once had an email exchange and he gave me permission to go public with it, but I, I just couldn't do it. Um, and in that email exchange, he said the Crusades weren't that serious. Uh, the uh, witch burnings were exaggerated. He, he just minimized every single thing. And I just thought to myself, you know, you think you're making Christianity look better? And, and, and something else I realized about him is that for him, Christianity and Western civilization were fused together. And his defense of Christianity mm. was a defense of Western civilization. And in that mm. way, it was an act of aggression toward Muslims and uh, Buddhists and Hindus. And so it all sort of was of a piece, you know. Uh, and, and I think that's part of what so many of us just don't want to be part of anymore. We don't want to be part of that kind of dismissive, defensive, uh, Christianity. Um, and, and of course, the, you know, I'm not one to go around and vilify all these people of the past. I, I mean, they are what they are and they did what they did. And, 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 it, and if I'd been alive, I may have done many of the similar, uh, similar things, but to, to say that the message of Jesus Christ should not have demanded more of people, <laughs> it just feels mm. to me like, uh, a pretty low opinion of the uh, of Jesus and his message. Well, and as I said early on too, you know, I try to live by his message and what he fought for and died yeah. for, right? But one other thing you said a little bit earlier in the text, you said, you know, teaching others by their example to live by Jesus's spiritual method of radical, non-discriminatory love and courageous truth-telling. Um, you know, that's gotten me in trouble at times. Yes. Um, with some, 
And yes. I don't do it nearly as much as I used to. And Zach has actually said, and some of my science education friends have said that they're really happy that I don't engage as much on Twitter as I used to. Partly because I was blocked by Ken Ham, who is still welcome to be on the show. But um, what I I also have uh, several friends who are members of the LGBTQ community and who are people of faith. And I I remember telling one of them one time when we were having a conversation about some of um, their struggles, and I just kind of said that I believe in a God who loves us for us. Yeah. And that if that makes me wrong when I have to face God at the end of my time, and I'm told that's not the way it works, my response to my friend was, is, I don't want to be there anyway. Like, if, that, yes. if that's what can get me into heaven, if, <laughs> if heaven is a place yes. that they say, you messed up, you have to renounce that, I'd say, I'm going somewhere else. Yes, that, that, that God is not good enough. <laughs> Right, that's just not good enough. Mm. My our, uh, my friend Trip Fuller says, "Look, if you if if your view of God isn't half as nice as Jesus, <laughs> there's something wrong." Uh, so, right? How could Christians take Jesus and like look at him in the Gospels, and then be like, "All right, well, but at the end of it all, we're going to meet scary yeah. God, and he's going to do the scary yeah. judge thing," while Jesus. The guy, you know, the don't cast the first stone guy, he's just going to be in his room because he's a naughty boy or something. I, I don't right. know. Why is he not up on yes. the jet? Like, we can affirm that all members of the Trinity are of one substance, according to the ancient creeds, but yet won't apply Jesus's examples of grace to the judgments that we fear from God You know, the there was a, a Quaker theologian who... I just think captured what we're discussing right now so aptly. He he said uh, it was Elton Trueblood, uh, and this isn't a quote, but this is sort of the substance of one of his ideas. He said the 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 Christian understanding of the deity of Christ did not mean that we had a definition of God, and Jesus came along and we lifted him up to that definition. He said what what this really is supposed to mean is that we had a definition of God and Jesus came along and we had to adjust our definition of God. Um, mm. uh, and I think that's very well, I think that's very well said. I, I think that's what it should have been. I, I don't know if that is what, what happened historically, but I think that's <laughs> how it should have been. Yeah, if I can, if I can pivot yes. here for a second. We've, we've been on some heavy topics. I want to... I want to lighten things up okay. a little bit. Uh, your chapter on rewilding ourselves and our faith and humanity itself was far and above my favorite chapter oh. of the book. I, I highlighted the, the, basically the whole thing. Um, it reminded me very much of a conversation uh, those longtime listeners might remember. Uh, at, way back in 2020, episode 42, with Dr. Scott, the paleontologist from PBS's Dinosaur I remembered Train. it too. Um, First thing I thought about. <laughs> called Reenchanting the yes. Natural World was, was his. And his theory and his uh, the whole devotion he has towards educating children is that in, in, or, in order to save the world from climate disaster, from environmental disaster, we will not do that by better spreadsheets. Because nobody is apathetic because they don't know the facts. They're apathetic because they yes. don't care. 
And so his entire life miss- mission is to help children fall back in love yes. with the world. Oh, I love to that. To re-enchant yes. Yes. nature and to get them outside and even while watching television to then inspire them to go outside afterwards. Because when you fall in love with the world, then you want to save it. It's your mother again. It's not, it's not just a commodity anymore. And reading your chapter about being out on a kayak in the middle of, the, uh, of, of Florida and there's gators and birds and fish <laughs> and the, the whole deal, I'm, I'm there in my mind and I'm imagining my own slice of mm. wild here in the Pennsylvania yes. mountains. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the natural world and how this process of rewilding has awoken your spirituality and how we might best yes, share that yes. with people. Well, maybe I could just tell you two quick stories. Uh, one from yesterday, I, um, we had a, a death in the family uh, over the last week. And so I was out of state. Uh, I was in New Jersey um, for, for the funeral. And uh, I had to do a whole bunch of interviews uh, for this book. So I was in, in the home office of my deceased brother-in-law uh, to conduct these interviews. I brought along my microphone and had my computer set up. Hmm. And right outside his window, uh, there's a, uh, a dogwood tree. And in the dogwood tree, about two feet from the window, was a robin building her nest. And so I was doing interviews literally from, you know, 10 in the morning till 11 at night, because uh, some of them were Pacific Coast uh, uh, time. And so as I sat there through the day, I watched the mother robin come and go and come and go, mouthful of mud, a mouthful of uh, grass, mm-hmm. and watching her use her the shape of her body to form the perfect cup. You know, if you've ever observed a... a a bird's nest, it's just this perfect uh, uh, semi-sphere. Oh my goodness, it's just, uh, and I never gotten to watch that at that such an intimate angle. And if that wasn't good enough, <laughs> just before dark, she was out, I guess, gathering more materials and a little English sparrow came in and climbs into her nest and steals a bunch of grass. <laughs> Um, and Rude. it was just great. And I just felt like I just got to see a little bit of mischief and theft and all the rest in the, in the bird world. But it just all felt, I just, it just was. It, it, uh, there's a, a poet, uh, what, what a great uh, uh, a resume. There's a fellow uh, named Lanham from Clemson University who's a biologist and a poet. Isn't that a great combination? Hmm. And he, Oof, he uses yes a term in one of his poems, orgasm. <laughs> That we have these experiences of awe Ooh. that produce this sort of <laughs> delight, you know, that's that goes beyond words, and uh, and I, I that's what I felt watching that all unfold. Um, and then another experience uh, last summer, I, I I've fallen in love with a, a place. I highly recommend it for people who like this sort of thing called Ring Lake Ranch. It's a a, a Christian based retreat center, but it's just a place that brings you out into the wilderness of Wyoming. And you get to ride horses and fly fish and hike and and just enjoy an incredible a place with deep history for the sheep eater people, the Native American people of that area. And uh, and I took a hike with a botanist. And as we walked oh, wow. through a badlands area along the Wind River Gorge, she would just everything she talked about was a relationship. Um, we came along, she mm. said, see that flower there? She says, I've never seen that flower in bloom during the daytime. It's a night blooming flower. 
And she said, there is one species of wasp that pollinates that flower. And it only comes mm. out at night. And, and she said, isn't it amazing to think one species of wasp and one flower have evolved to be uh, sort of partners in, their, in one another's survival, you know? And then we'd come upon a sagebrush. And she'd talk about, before she was done, you just felt you were on holy ground. It was like a burning bush, but it was the sagebrush because, she explained, this is high desert. And in the, in the winter snow drifts form around sagebrushes. And that snow drift then, when it melts, it concentrates moisture around the base of the sagebrush, which helps the sagebrush live, but also becomes like a little oasis of moisture. And then she starts talking about all the creatures that depend on that moisture of the sagebrush. And I, I mean, you're done and you're just, you're, it's ecstatic to think mm-hmm. of the web of life that is around you. And, um, and that sense of connectedness, if that's not holy, I, I don't know what is, you know? And so a, any kind of Christianity that wants to ignore all that and just look at the world as something that God plans to destroy because he wants to suck our souls up into heaven or send them uh, somewhere else, you just think, what... A, what a blasphemy to mm-hmm. to discount mm. the wonder and glory that's there, you know, in in that uh, uh, badlands of the Wind River Gorge. <laughs> you talk about that sort of mutual evolution in between mm-hmm. things. That um, when we first were developing the ideas of evolution, uh, the the common conception was survival of yes. the fittest, the strongest, yes. right? The the beefiest and biggest teeth. And we've learned that in many ways, that was just white supremacy reading itself into science when the truth is that it's survival of the most adaptable, the most uh, resourceful, the best collaborators is, is survival of those who can work with others best is is how species evolve and continue that relationality is just cooked, it is in. cooked in and if we're going to survive we have to learn that wisdom from from creation i i was honored to be invited to write a book about the galapagos islands so i've had a chance to visit there a few times and i i in my book i wrote a couple chapters about charles darwin and i i got to read his biography while i was there and 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 then just did a bunch of research and that term survival of the fittest you may know this um it wasn't Darwin's term, uh, and uh, Arthur uh, Arthur Wallace, I think it was Arthur was his first name. I, I, he um, he recommended the term because natural selection sounded like it personified nature too much. You know that nature is making choices yeah. like a Calvinist God makes choices, and they wanted to get away from that. Um, when they used the word fittest, it meant fit best, the opposite of the most domineering and aggressive. It's those who fit best. So yes, yes. You will love my favorite, uh, the, my favorite new fact in physics that is just, that is filling my soul with awe and wonder these days is that, um, do you think about the part of the atom that makes, that has stuff, right? That has mass, that has the stuff that makes you a thing and not just nothing. Where does your mass come from? Well, only 9% of the mass of an atom comes from the particles of the atom. 91% of the mass of every atom comes from the interaction between the atoms. The forces created by the protons and neutrons, 
generate the the 91% of the mass of you and I and the planet and the stars everything is a relationship between things without the relationship the things that exist don't exist <laughs> and i love that i mean that is just that's theological right so literally there. the weightiest part of the universe is its relationships <laughs> mm -hmm. exactly it is it is oh. if you ever wanted to find a fingerprint of a relational creator who created a creation that continues yes, to create it it's right there and and this is yeah. when you were talking about anticipatory christianity this is if if what will happen if we're given the chance to incorporate all of these magnificent understandings into our theological work uh, and not just be stuck yeah. under this very low ceiling of Neoplatonic philosophy, uh, mm -hmm. or, or, which, which has its own beauties and all the rest. But, you know, uh, yeah. So th all of this is one of the other reasons it's a little hard to walk away in spite of all the horrible things, because somebody is going to get to do this kind of revisioning of what we mean when we say the word God in light of all of this. And what we mean when we say the word human in light of all of this. And uh, it sort of would be a shame to miss, uh, miss that fun. <laughs> <laughs> it is fun, isn't it? <laughs> well, and, you know, reading throughout your, your book, too, about, you know, the interconnectedness of all things and just the importance of, you know, even stepping back from that, just developing those connections and those relationships. You know, that's something that as a teacher... Um, I do with my students and, you know, I teach future elementary school teachers how to teach science. And so one of the first things I really focus on is not necessarily let's get into teaching science immediately. It's let's develop a connection to each other, a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've been told by some of my colleagues that they've always been impressed that typically by week two, I've developed a very strong rapport yes. with my students. And I tell my students this is um, my messaging to them all the time is that if you're able to connect with your students on a personal level in some way, you can teach them anything there is. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. Because they will learn to trust you and know they're in a safe space. Yes. And in the presence of that kind of respect and, uh, and affection, you know, and, and uh, in the presence of that our curiosity comes out. And so then we mm -hmm. become natural learners because we feel safe and all the rest. Oh, it's so true. And this again is one of the things that I think we have to realize that the Christian religion, by working so much on a, a base of fear and shame, uh, mm -hmm. creates an antagonistic environment to learning and curiosity. And it might be one of the factors in the lack of transformation we were talking about before. It, it makes people sort of hunker down um, rather than open up. Well, that's what, you know, part of that too with developing that relationship and connection is in, it kind of touches on something, uh, Zach, you said earlier when talking about Dr. Scott coming on is, you know, teaching people to love nature again is that I approach my class also of teaching them to not fear science yes, and to realize why it's such an incredible thing to teach and that children are natural born scientists. Yes. Um, just the yeah. whole notion of being curious and wanting to ask a question is doing science. Yes. Um, and so I remind them of that. And then I say, 
now let's have some fun and focus on ways to teach it. But if they can get that down yep. pretty quickly, we're going to have a good time. So, yeah. Be a nice thing for seminarians to hear. <laughs> I, me I mentioned before we started recording, a friend of mine just wrote his first book um, called Jesus Takes the Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. His name is Johnny Rashid. Um, by the time this episode airs, I think it'll be a week out from release. Um, and in it, one of the things he argues is that Western Christianity doesn't have a sense of honor but it does have a mm. sense of shame. And most societies are honor-shame based. And uh, his family comes from Egypt, and they have a, a deeply ingrained system of yes. honor and shame. And honor and shame is how you keep society together, how you keep religion together. But Western Christianity has a lot of shame, but we have no systems of honor anymore. And so we cling desperately to our our dogma, our beliefs, our right thinking, because it is so easy to feel shame and so hard to wow. find honor in the system anymore. Sounds remarkable. It, it, it is. And it's, it's, it's a great book and everyone should read it. But I think that when we're talking about reimagining the church and reimagining our faith and our religion and what it means to follow Christ, I mean, I can't think of another historical person who spent more time pouring honor yes. on people that other people yes, poured shame yes, on. Yes, 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 And if we're going to reimagine this faith, I, I think we put that near the center. It. I love it. Um, as, as we're, as we're sort of wrapping up our time together, um, I want to, I want to ask you one more question that for me is very full circle because back in 2006, I preached a sermon as a teenager at my home church based on your brand new book, The Secret Message of Jesus. Uh, a part of that book is in which you talked about how the phrase, the kingdom of God, doesn't work uh, in this post-monarchical world. You know, nobody knows what a kingdom is anymore. Jesus was using a metaphor for his time that no longer works and probably carries too, many, too much baggage for it to be useful. And you propose a dozen different solutions. The, 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 my favorite one at the time was the dream of God. That was the name of the sermon. I actually just listened to the sermon today. It was very hard to listen to an 18 year old me <laughs> preach a sermon, but <laughs> here we are. I wonder if in the past 16 years, you've found a version of the kingdom of God that resonates mm. deeper with you and with the current reality we find oh, ourselves very in. much. So that's very relevant to our, our, discussion today uh you know there, there there's a chapter in the book called to free god and um uh and i i have a beautiful quote from uh, barbara brown taylor that uh, plays heavily in the book and um uh, and in fact maybe the way for me to say the phrase is to say that i think this phrase refers to the kingdom of god and i think it refers to god uh, in in that chapter i talk about in 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 uh, do i stay christian i talk about the you that we refer to god that seems to me becomes a we because the the nature of god it seems to me is a god of participation who invites us into participation in the divine life and so um, anyhow, the phrase is the web of life. Um, and I, in fact, I, I, ha I wrote a little table grace that is my 
table grace for the last several years. And it's, I just say, for this breath, for this heartbeat, for this meal with these companions, for the web of life of which we're part, we give thanks with all our heart. And it's, and as I'm saying the web of life, I realize I'm not just talking about uh, that web of life includes God. <laughs> it's it, it's a we that's God and creation in that one web. So that now I think the the web is what weighs ninety one percent, or that's ninety one percent of the mass. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. It is all about how we are connected to one well, another. Well, if I may uh, ask one more question, Brian, it was based on something you said to us at the very beginning after you talked about your experience with Charlottesville. You said you kind of alluded to uh, that you are concerned about things to come. Yeah. Right? So, that was hard to hear. Yeah. So, what gives you hope? Yeah. Because January 6th was rough. It was rough. For those of us who admit what happened. So, um, Ian, that's really an important question. And in fact, that's going to be at the heart of the next book I write, actually. Um, uh, and I guess one thing I can say is the word hope used to mean for me, where do I see trend lines that make me think things might get better? And I'm right. not defining hope that way anymore. I'm not defining hope as having anything to do with evidence um, or, or, or not not depending on evidence. Um, and... Uh, because what I expect, this is what's helping me have hope, to not have to depend on evidence for things getting better. What I expect will happen is that forms of Christianity will get worse than they've ever been. I, I think that's almost unavoidable. I think I can't imagine it not happening. I there are people who want it to happen. They want Christianity to become, in words I would use, uglier, more selfish, mm -hmm. more vicious, more violent. And I have no hope that that will not happen. I like that will happen. But here's the th here's what I think. As that happens, I'm quite certain that we are seeing and will see extraordinarily beautiful expressions of Christian faith and other expressions of human life as well just because the ugliness that we'll see will, will provoke many of us to step out of sort of complacency into a more vigorous and robust expression of beauty and pursuit of beauty. Um, and, and the lies and conspiracy theories on one side will make us more passionate to actually know and face the truth. And, um, and, and of that, of course, I do see evidence. I see our conversation being evidence. All three of us are different than we were th three years ago. And, and, and right. so, you know, it's just all around us. I, when I was, you know, I, I said I was out of town and when I was on a plane coming home this morning, as I walked down the aisle of the plane, I just had one of those kind of graced moments where as I walked down the aisle, I, this guy is asleep and this woman is tending her child and this older person is reading a magazine. And as I'm walking down the aisle toward my seat at the back cheap seat of the plane, 
I just felt this tenderness and love and saw the beauty of these people. It was one of those moments where you just sort of, you feel every one of these people is beloved, you know? And, um, and I, I just think more and more of us are moving in that direction. Uh, but that won't stop the ugly people, the, the ugly things from happening and taking over more and more people's lives too. So that's how I, that's how I survive. I, I, I have to be able to expect the worst will happen and, and the best will happen. So then we'll just also have to have you back on when you finish that next book. <laughs> okay. I would like that. I would like I appreciate that, that response, Brian. That helps a Absolutely. lot. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. The book is called Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. It is available wherever you get your books as of yesterday. Uh, Brian, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you for the past hour. Thank you so much for carving time out of your ridiculously busy life to be <laughs> yes, with us It's been today. such a delight. It's just been a pleasure. I'm, I feel energized, and I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. Thanks for having me on, and please keep up this good work. It's important. Thank you.